Right, okay, well our base verse in this series, it's the second talk tonight, is Romans 6 verse 14, where Paul simply says, you are not under law, but under grace. And law and grace is what we're exploring. And we're asking, and are going to answer, four questions. And they are these, given that we're not under law, but under grace, the four questions are these. Firstly, what is this law that we're not under? Secondly, why aren't we under it? Thirdly, right, if we're not under law but under grace, what then is this grace we are under? And then fourthly, given that we're under grace and not law, does that mean that being under grace is a form of lawlessness? And they're the questions that we're asking, and in fact the first two will be answered tonight. And uh, in regards to it, we're looking at the errors of legalism and license. Now, we saw that covenants is the name of the game here, and that legalism and license are teachings in the church that are wrong. They've always been there. They're sort of like wings of an aeroplane. You've got one here and the opposite over there. And the error of legalism is when you get the old covenant mixed up with the new covenant. All right? That's the error of legalism. And the error of license, we've said, is when Christians feel that they're free even from the new covenant with its teachings and demands, etc., etc. Now, last time we went through the covenants in the ancient world and in the Bible. And uh, with the ones that God has made with man, we saw that, that there are two types, conditional, unconditional. And there are six in the Bible, covenants that God has made with man. And last time, we looked at four of them. We saw the Edenic one in the Garden of Eden. We saw the one with Noah, the Noachic, not Anarchic, but the Noachic. We saw the Abrahamic, the covenant that God made with him. And we saw the Davidic, right, a covenant that God made with King David. And what, now that's four out of six, there are six altogether. And what we saw was that all four of those were what we saw to be royal grants, i.e. a covenant that the king made with his subjects where the conditions were only for the king to fulfill, unconditional, i.e. a king said, I am going to give you this. And because the king said it, you got it. A covenant that was really simply a promise, and it was merely down to the one who made it to keep the promise. And of course, when God promises something, he keeps it. Uh, now, so we've seen four so far. Now, tonight, we're going to move on to the first of the two we haven't seen yet. The old covenant tonight and the new one we move on to next time. And what we're going to see is that the covenant that God made that we're going to see tonight um, is unique in the sense that it's the only one that God has ever made with man, which is what we saw last time to be a suzerain vassal one. A covenant that was imposed by a greater power on a lesser power, and the conditions had to be fulfilled by the lesser power, a suzerain vassal. So the suzerain being the greater power and the vassal being the lesser power.
and um, you know a covenant that has got conditions within it that the those on whom it's been imposed have to fulfill and we're going to see tonight the only one like that that God has ever made we've seen that so far four out of the six were royal grants simply a free gift God said I am going to do this for you and therefore it happened but this one is unique in the sense that it's the only suzerain vassal one that God has ever made with man so let's see it uh, if you go to um if you go to <clears throat> Exodus and chapter 19 and of course it will come as no surprise that what we're going to be looking at now is the Mosaic <coughs> law or the covenant with Moses or the old covenant or to give it its more general term in the Bible simply the law alright we're not under law but we're under grace and we saw last time from John 1 17 the simple statement that the law came through Moses but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ so tonight the covenant with Moses the mosaic covenant the law of Moses old covenant and Exodus chapter 19 you're all there I'm not Just give me a sec to Exodus chapter 19 and uh, let's start reading from <coughs> verse 3. Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain, and said, This is what you are to say to the house of Jacob, and what you are to tell the house of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt, and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be a treasured possession to me. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. So Moses went back and summoned the elders of the people and set before them all the words the Lord had commanded him to speak. They all responded together saying, we will do everything the Lord has said. So Moses brought their answer back to the Lord. Now the things to notice are this, verse 5, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant. Here we have a suzerain vassal covenant being made between God and, ma and man, Moses acting on their behalf. Now notice, Israel didn't ask for this to happen. It is being imposed on them by God, the greater power, the suzerain. Israel are the lesser power, the vassal power and what you've got here is a conditional covenant that God is making and the condition is that they live in obedience to the laws in the covenant and uh, from this point onwards I, I think it's either 613 or 614 I can't remember exactly but in the order of just over 600 laws that God writes down all right for them 
and he says, if you obey the laws of the covenant I'm making, then the covenant will stand. Um, and what he says is that if you do this, then as a nation you're going to be a possession of mine, treasured, a kingdom of priests, and a holy nation. That's, that's getting to sound a little bit like salvation, that, isn't it? And then in verse 8, the people say, we will do all that you say. So in verse 8, Israel say, right, okay, we agree to it. Now, notice not that they had too much choice. When an invading army marched in and beat you up as a smaller country, when the king of the invading army says, right, a covenant, lads, it's going to be a suzerain vassal, you weren't really in the position to say no. You could, but then he'd have wiped you out, annihilated you. So the point is that here the people say yes, but it's a little bit of a technicality. But the point is they agree to it, okay. And uh, then that's, that's chapter 19. And in chapter 20 onwards, uh, the laws are given. It kicks off with the Ten Commandments, all right, and plus the other 600 or so. And uh, if you go through it, and really it's in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and restated in Deuteronomy, you'll find that this law includes the Levitical priesthood and the sacrificial system, the tabernacle, the temple, blah, blah, blah. It's all in there as a package. The covenant that God is making with Moses on behalf of Israel, all right? Now then, if you just uh, go on to verse 24, <coughs> sorry, chapter 24, and uh, every covenant has to kind of be ratified and confirmed, and uh, if we, uh, Exodus 24, and we'll read from verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, what's happening here, God has kind of like, he started to state the whole law. It didn't come all at once. You know, it got stated over a period of time, but now God kind of interrupts and he says to Moses, come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab, Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel. You are to worship at a distance, but Moses alone is to approach the Lord. The others must not come near and the people may not come up with him. When Moses went and told the people all the Lord's words and laws, they responded saying, everything the Lord has said we will do. Moses then wrote down everything the Lord has said, so this law was getting written down. All right. He got up early the next morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and set up twelve pillars of stone representing the twelve tribes of Israel. Then he sent young Israelite men and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as fellowship offerings to the Lord. Moses took half of the blood and put it in bowls, and the other half he sprinkled on the altar. Remember last time we saw the idea of cutting a covenant, you know, that they cut a bull or something in half, and then the two parties um, involved in the deal or the treaty would then walk between it, you know, and sort of like, you know, sort of the blood, all right. Um, then he took the book of the covenant and read it to the people. They responded, we will do everything the Lord has said, we will obey. Moses then took the blood, sprinkled it on the people and said, this is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. So there you have it, the blood of the covenant. The covenant is now officially, if you like, confirmed between the two parties, God and Israel, all right. And of course, what we have here is a covenant of salvation that is going to be dependent 
upon Israel obeying these laws that God is handing out to them. So we have here a covenant of salvation through obedience to the law. We have here a covenant, if you like, of salvation by works. Now, if you go to Deuteronomy now, the actual book Deuteronomy, um, in the Hebrew, it means second law giving. And in Deuteronomy, really, you get everything that's gone before restated, before they go into the Promised Land. Uh, you know, so Deuteronomy is a restatement of the law. And if you go to um, chapter 27, all right, now remember, in a suzerain vassal thing, a treaty of that kind, what happened, if you obeyed your suzerain, he protected you, he blessed you. If you went against him and were unfaithful to him, you got clobbered and judgment came upon you at the hand of the suzerain. Always remembering the suzerain was more powerful than you were. That was the nature of the treaty. Now, uh, Deuteronomy chapter 7 and in verse 9, uh, sorry, uh, Deuteronomy 27 and verse 9, then Moses and the priests, who are Levites, said to all Israel, Be silent, Israel, and listen. You have now become the people of the Lord your God. See? Salvation by works. Become God's people. Obey the Lord your God and follow his commands and decrees I give you this day. On the same day Moses commanded the people, when you have crossed the Jordan, blah, blah, blah. Then what happens in verse 14? It says, the, Levi, the Levites, the priests, shall recite to all the people of Israel in a loud voice. And then from verse 15 down to verse 26, this is what they are saying. Cursed is the man who carves an image or casts an idol. Verse 16, cursed is the man who dishonors his father or mother. Verse 17, cursed is the man who moves his neighbor's boundary stone. And what you've got here is various laws, all right, and the straightforward statement that if you go against these laws, if you don't fulfill them, then you're going to be cursed. You're going to come under the judgment of your suzerain. And who was their suzerain? God. So, if the terms of the covenant are broken by Israel, then God's cursing is going to come upon them. Now then, chapter 28. Now look at this. If you fully obey the Lord your God and carefully follow all his commands that I give you today, the Lord will set you high above all the nations on earth and the blessings will come upon you and accompany you if you obey the law of God. And then to down from there down to verse 14, you get a list of the blessings that God will give them if they are faithful to the law, you see. But significantly, in chapter 15, we go back to, how, uh, sorry, in verse 15, we go back to, however, if you do not obey the Lord your God and do not carefully follow all his commands and decrees I'm giving you, all these curses will come upon you and overtake you. And then from verse 16 right through to verse 68 is a whole load more cursings. You see, are you getting the idea? A suzerain vassal. God is saying, 
If the covenant that I'm making with you is honoured and kept by you, I will protect you, I will bless you, you'll be my people. But if you break the covenant, if you go against it, then you're going to come under my cursing. <coughs> chapter 21, uh, chapter 29 and verse 1. These are the terms of the covenant the Lord commanded Moses to make with the Israelites in Moab. All right. Um, and then uh, chapter 30. So again, these are the terms of the covenant that God is making with Moses, all right, a suzerain vassal one. Um, and then chapter 30, and we'll just read from verse 15. Um, and it boils down to this. God says, see, I have set before you today life and prosperity, death and destruction. For I command you today to love the Lord your God to walk in his ways, to keep his commands, his decrees and laws, then you will live and increase and the Lord your God will bless you in the land you are entering to possess. But if your heart turns away and you are not obedient, and if you are drawn away to bow down to other gods and worship then, I declare to you this day you certainly will be destroyed. You will not live long in the land you are crossing the Jordan to enter and possess. This day I call heaven and earth as witnesses against you that I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Now choose life so that you and your children may live. And that was what it boiled down to. God makes a covenant with them, alright? And he says, it's up to you, choose. Be obedient and be blessed, or be against me and rebel and break my laws, and you will be cursed. So then, what we have here is the, the covenant with Moses. The Mosaic law. Old covenant. Or, more generally, in the New Testament, the law. Alright? And we see that the covenant that we've got here, the old one, is a suzerain vassal treaty. A covenant that is conditional upon those on whom it's been imposed obeying its laws and fulfilling the conditions. Alright? It's a covenant given by God of salvation by works. Salvation is available, you can be God's people. But the condition is that you must obey the law. If you break the covenant, then you're not God's people anymore. We have here blessing and salvation on the basis of personal holiness. We have here a covenant that represents acceptance by God provided you are able by your own effort to obey his laws. And of course the thing to realise as well is that this covenant has to be kept and obeyed all the time. So let's say for 10 years you're keeping the covenant, well you're saved. You're God's person, as it were. But then, if you fall and you go against the covenant, it's broken, and that's it, you're out. 
So it's not just a covenant of salvation by works, it's a covenant of salvation by unbroken and ongoing works. There's an incentive scheme in this covenant. One sin and you're lost. That was the incentive scheme to holiness under the covenant of Moses. Now, in regards to the question we're asking, what is this law we are not under? Here it is. We are not under the covenant of Moses. We are not under the Mosaic law. And we're going to proceed now to understand why, and therefore answer question two, why aren't we under it? We're going to see now precisely why it is that we are not under the law, all right? Now, in order to do that, we've got to understand a little bit about the nature and the scope of this law of Moses. Because if you read through it in its entirety, you'll see that it's got various aspects to it. And what we're going to do, this is a real thumbnail sketch, all right, but everything you ever wanted to know about the Mosaic law, but were afraid to ask, that can be fitted in in about six minutes. So, so here we go. And we need to understand the different aspects that the covenant had within it. And uh, I basically want to pinpoint seven initially and then we're going to move on to an eighth so we'll do the first seven all right firstly it had within it dietary laws as simple as that laws about diet what you could and couldn't eat all right now the point is that those dietary laws remember israel are facing 40 years in the desert all right supermarkets few and far between all right you know, before Tesco's and Sainsbury's got off the ground, all right? In the wilderness, they're probably every couple of miles apart now. But in the wilderness, 40 years of being miraculously sustained by God as a nation, all right? Just wandering in the desert. Now, the point is, the dietary laws, and it's interesting, there have been books written by scientists, and they say that the information in the law of Moses was so, you know, it was scientifically profound. It really was. This has been verified by dietitians today. And it saved them from, you know, about 5,728 varieties of food poisoning. Can you see what I mean? I.e., it ensured their safety in the desert. They had no refrigerators. And in the dietary laws, they had what was safe to eat and what wasn't safe to eat. And I mean, just as a quick example, pork would have been deadly. You know, do you know what I mean? If they'd have woken up every morning, you know, rather than manna in the wilderness, it was bacon sandwiches. Well, you know, I mean, they wouldn't be in Israel anymore. They'd have all died, you see. So you've quite simply got dietary laws, what it was safe and not safe for them to eat, bearing in mind they had 40 years wandering in the wilderness. Number two, the law of Moses contains sanitation laws. Now, this boils down to things like digging holes in the desert, and I'm not going to say very much more about it, except that those sanitation laws save them from another 3,727,000 diseases that they could have caught if they hadn't been sanitary. Can you see what I mean? The fact that they were digging holes in the desert. Can you see it saved them from so much ill health? 
all right. And it was profound. Israel was way ahead of the nations of the day when it came to cleanliness and, you know, personal hygiene and, you know, dietary laws, etc., etc. Other nations were eating anything. All right. So, sanitation laws. Number three, the law of Moses had within it criminal laws. Um, Israel didn't have a police force. And the reason they didn't have a police force was because every citizen was responsible for their neighbour's goods. If you live in a little village, all right, and your next door neighbour got robbed, they'd gone out and they got burgled, all right? Well, they would come home, hey, I've been burgled, they'd go to the elders of the village, all right? The elders of the village would then go and find out their neighbours and they'd say, were you in when this burglary took place? And if you said no, it was no problem, but if you were, then you would have to help pay back what he'd lost because you were supposed to be vigilant for your neighbour. Can you see? So there was no police force because in Israeli society, in the Old Testament, the idea was that you were your brother's keeper. You, everyone was looking out for everybody else. So no police force because everyone was a policeman, you see. Um, judicial laws come in here as well, you know, how they did court cases, how you tried people, you know, someone gets accused of burglary or whatever. Um, appeal proceedings are dealt with, you know, like in court cases. You know, you've been convicted, you can appeal. There were places, if you'd been, you know, found guilty unfairly, there were places of refuge you could go to and no one could touch you there. Um, you know, and sort of like punishments as well. All, all that, the criminal laws, all that is an aspect of the law of Moses. Number four, the law of Moses had religious laws. You see, the covenant that God made with him is very wide-ranging. So, you know, a very big thing. It had religious laws, and this covered the priesthood, uh, sacrifices, the tabernacle, the temple, uh, tithing of money, that was the tax system, um, offerings for the priests and the work of the Lord. It covered feast days, uh, it covered holy days, it covered fasting, etc., etc. The religious laws of Israel were in the covenant with Moses. Number five, health laws. Now, we've seen this to a certain extent, dietary laws and sanitation laws, but there were health laws as well, because diseases had to be contained. One of the most dangerous was leprosy. And in the law, the priests had instructions for how to diagnose leprosy. And once someone had been diagnosed, what you do with him? And do you know what you do? You quarantine him. And, and, and it's laws like that, you know, sort of, you know, sort of quarantine, how long you're quarantined for. When are you safe to come back into the city so that other people won't catch what you've got? So there are health laws in there as well. Um, then, sixthly, you've got a kind of... Um, a, a fairly general aspect which I put down as social law. Um, I mean, the nation of Israel was ruled by a king, but it was administered, um, you know, by priests, and, and the priesthood, uh, along with local elders of cities and that, they were a combined civil service <laughs> come local council, all right, come healthcare system. It, it was all wrapped up in one. Um, you know, so tithing was there partly to pay the wages of the priests, all right. Yeah, I mean, they were running Israel, you know, they were the civil servants as well. Um, there was a social security system for the poor. Um, you know, sort of like, for instance, if, if you were a farmer and you had a field, all right, 
then there were certain rules. When it came to harvest, you could only harvest so much. And there were strict rules. What you couldn't harvest in one go had to be left and the poor could go and finish off harvesting your field. All sorts of things like this. The social security system was there for the poor. Uh, the policy towards, uh, you know, sort of like uh, Moabites. You know, they come in, I want to emigrate to Israel. Immigration policy, it's all there. A very fair one. They welcomed anyone. The only thing was they couldn't own land. Only an Israelite could own land. But immigrants were welcome and looked after. Why? because Israel had once been in Egypt, and Egypt looked after them, so they were to look after people from other nations as well. Ethics in business are covered in the social laws. Uh, property dealing, the regulations for that, it's all in there. Um, the regulation of slavery. Now, don't think that slavery in Israel uh, was the kind, you know, Uncle Tom's cabin thing, or like the Egyptian slaves, it wasn't. Israeli slavery was more, more like upstairs, downstairs. It was more servants. So they had slavery, but don't think in terms of what the, you know, the British Empire you know, did to the Africans, because it wasn't like that at all. And indeed, regulations ensured it never could be that the slaves got a fair deal. Um, these social laws covered marriage, education for children, etc., etc., blah, blah, blah. Now, can you see that there we've seen six areas of this law? It is incredibly comprehensive. In effect, the covenant that we're seeing tonight was the constitution of Israel as a nation. It was a national constitution. The United States has a constitution, don't they? This was Israel's. Their constitution as a nation under God. And remember that what was unique about Israel from this time onwards, all right, was that they were a theocracy. And a theocracy means government by God. And the point was their national constitution and their law book, if you like, that covered every aspect of their life, was given directly by God. All the laws they had, they weren't thrashed out democratically in a parliament. They were given directly by God. Moses just kind of wrote them down. Or in fact, God wrote down the Ten Commandments himself with his finger. So what you've got here is a theocracy, all right? Government by God. The laws were all made by God himself. He was the king. They were simply handed on through Moses. Now we come to a seventh area of the law. And the seventh area encompasses the fact that part of God's particular plan for having Israel, a nation of his own, was that he wanted a people and a nation who would be absolutely distinctive from the nations in the world. And the point is that Israel would represent God's holiness and righteousness in a world where all the nations were kind of, you know, sort of absolutely against God and totally sinful. So God wanted a people who would represent holiness in a sinful world. And particularly, you've got to bear in mind that at this point in the world's, you know, past, that all the nations, and particularly the ones in Canaan, where they were going, those people universally 
adhered to demonic and occult faiths of the most hideous kind. Child sacrifice, the lot. So the point is that Israel were going into a land where all the nations were into occultism, demonism, you name it, you know, the most barbaric of things, all right. And God wanted a nation who would represent him as the one true God, all right. Now, the point is, as Israel marched into Canaan amongst all these nations with their demonic lifestyles, blah, 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 and their religions which were totally counterfeit and satanic, um, as Israel marched in amongst them, all right, the greatest danger to Israel was always that they would mingle. That, that, that the, the distinction that kept them apart from all the other nations would become blurred. Is it? So, the point is that, therefore, in order for God to maintain the absolute distinctiveness of Israel, as opposed to the demonism of the nations around, okay, what he did in the law, he forbade certain things, alright, which, whilst harmless in themselves, were part and parcel of the demonic practices of the nations around. Now, this aspect of the law explains certain commands and dictates. Like, if you read through the law in the Old Testament, you'll come up against certain commands which, on the one hand, some of them might seem a bit nutty. Daft, you, know, you can't work them out. That seems stupid. And some of them even seem to be unfair. I'll give you an example. One of the laws in the law of Moses is that Israel were forbidden to boil a kid in its mother's milk. Now why? What a, what a daft law. <laughs> that seems crazy, doesn't it? Why? Now, the point is this. The reason that they were forbidden to do that is because boiling a kid in its mum's milk was a recognised practice in some of the religions in Canaan. And it was part of their sacrifice to their idols. Now, therefore, God brought laws in so that Israel couldn't... I mean, there's nothing wrong in boiling a kid in its mother's milk. It's not a moral issue. But the practice was being done in conjunction with demon worship. Therefore, that law was brought in so that Israel couldn't even, by accident, end up looking like it was like the other nations. Can you see the point? And that is why you get laws in there which seem just daft. They're normally all explained by that fact. They're practices that there's nothing wrong with them of themselves in a moral sense, but they were things that the Canaanite nations were doing as part of their occultism. All right. Now, a second example I'll give you, and this, is, this explains also why some of the laws actually seem to be a bit unfair, all right, or, or a bit odd in the light of the rest of what we know that the Bible teaches. For instance, if a woman had her period, she was unclean, she could not partake in any religious event in Israel. She was unclean because of her period. Now, this raises the question, does that mean that there is actually something wrong with a woman who's got her period? Why is it that, is she unacceptable to God because she's menstruating? That it could appear at first hand, this is a bit sexist, couldn't it? But what is the reason? 
The actual reason was that because many of the cults in Canaan were fertility cults. And what happened was their worship and sacrifices uh, kind of involved sex with a woman who was menstruating. And again, it wasn't because menstruation is unclean in any absolute sense, it's not. It was so that Israel wouldn't even look like it was into fertility cults. And that's the reason that if a husband and wife in Israel had made love, if a certain sacrifice or religious event came along within a set number of hours, they were unclean, they couldn't take part. Now, does that mean that God doesn't like sex between husbands and wife? Of course he does, he loves it, he invented it. But it's again because so many of the cults in Canaan were fertility cults. Can you see the point? And it was all part of keeping Israel absolutely distinctive. So that Israel couldn't even, as it were, by accident, end up doing anything that might even remotely um, you know, be thought by the Canaanites to be the same sort of thing that they were doing. What we're seeing here is quite simply the principle of abstain from all appearance of evil. Now, obviously, evil must be abstained from, absolutely, but the Bible, well, it actually goes one step further, and it represents an idea, abstain from the appearance of evil, because people can misunderstand. You know, I mean, that each individual instance has to be judged on its own, but that is the principle that we're seeing here. So we've got the seventh aspect of the law was these kind of rules and regulations that were there, not as moral absolutes in that sense, but simply to prevent Israel even beginning to slide down the road that the Canaanites um, had already gone down to. So now we've seen seven aspects of the law, and then an eighth, all right, and it's simply this. We're left now with what you would call, quite straightforwardly, the moral aspect of the law the Ten Commandments themselves, what you might call the moral law. And uh, you've got them in Exodus chapter 20, don't turn to it, but in Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 to 17, you've got the Ten Commandments, the moral aspects of the law. And if you keep going and, you know, read through the whole law, you'll find what I call sundries of the moral law. I mean, homosexuality is condemned lesbianism is condemned, etc, etc. So you've got the Ten Commandments and other sundry issues pertaining to morality. Alright. Now then, so there we have the law, the covenant with Moses. Alright? And having got that far, any notion of us being under it should by now be a patent nonsense to you. And I'll tell you why. Because it was a covenant between God and the nation of Israel. We are Gentiles. Now, I'll mention what happens when Israelites get converted later. But it was a covenant between God and a particular nation. We are Gentiles. And most of the law was simply national law. Now, we live in England. As long as we live in England, we are not subject to the law of France. You see, the laws of France have no bearing upon us whatsoever. We live in England. 
So the point is, the two parties in the covenant, the old one, the Mosaic law, the two parties involved in the covenant are God and Israel, not the Gentiles. Now, we saw um, that the covenant in Eden, that included the Gentiles. We saw the covenant with Noah, that included the Gentiles. But not this one. It's God and Israel. Now, in my car insurance, I'm named in it. The insurers are, and Blinder is. They are the names in the covenant, if you like, that I've got with my insurers. Now, none of your names are in it. It's nothing to do with you at all. It has no bearing upon you. You are not a named party. It's as simple as that. So any notion that we as Gentiles could be under the law is crazy. But of course, that raises a question. And the question it raises is this. But what about the moral aspect of the law? Surely that is a bit different. Because, yeah, we can see all these areas of the law that were national laws, but surely the Ten Commandments, and you can include the miscellaneous and sundry ones about homosexual, you know, sort of behaviour, blah, 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 all right? Uh, but surely this is different, because after all, morality, especially when God gives it and dictates it, surely morality um, transcends national barriers, doesn't it? Um, you know, so therefore the question is, Surely, aren't we under that aspect of the law then? That part of the covenant, surely that applies to us, because it's moral. It's universal. We can understand that the dietary laws, the religion, blah, blah, blah. But the moral law, surely that bit of the covenant has got to be binding on it, hasn't it? All right. And so the question we must now ask is this. Are we not, at any rate, as Gentiles and as Christians, at least under the Ten Commandments? Do not the Ten Commandments apply to us? And the answer to that is a resounding, no, they don't apply to us in any way at all. The Old Covenant, in its entirety, is a covenant between God and Israel. We are Gentiles. It is not binding on us in the slightest, it is nothing to do with us at all. Now, I'd better keep explaining this pretty clearly, because you've heard me now say that the Ten Commandments don't apply to us, and I stand by that. They do have no bearing on us whatsoever. They do not apply to us. Why? Because we're not under law, and they are part of the law. So stick with me. If you don't come to all these talks, you're going to think you've got a, a heretic for an elder. Now, what we've got to do now is to see that there is actually another aspect to the law entirely that we haven't touched on yet. And it's this aspect that we move on to now that we've really got to grasp. Because unless we grasp this bit, you know, the rest of the series isn't going to make any sense to us. Now, let's remind ourselves what we've seen so far. The covenants that God makes with man, we've seen four alright, last time, and we saw that the covenants that God made with man um, were always royal grants. They were simply dependent on what God did. There were no conditions for man to fulfil at all. Now, this one, the covenant with Moses, the old one, is the exception to everything we've seen so far. 
because it is the only covenant that God has made with man that is conditional. It's suzerain vassal, alright. It is not royal grant. All the other ones that God makes with man are royal grant. This old covenant alone is a suzerain vassal one. It depends not just on God, it depends on man as well. And it's there that the clue lies to the thing that we need to understand. And it's there we will find the reason why it is that all others of the covenants that God have made with man are unconditional, i.e. their royal grant. And it's simply for this reason. If a covenant is introduced between God and man, then if it's a conditional one, if God makes covenants which are conditional, then the point is this, those covenants are without fail going to be broken from man's side. Any covenant that God makes with man, which is suzerain vassal, that depends on man doing his bit and then God does his, what you've got is that covenant, any such one as that, will always be broken from man's side because man is a sinner. Now, in the light of that, just take on board this statement. The old covenant was therefore an abject failure from day one. It was useless. Go to Exodus 31. Exodus 31, because we're going to see now what was going on in the camp of Israel while Moses was up the mountain getting the covenant from God in the first place. Exodus 31, and uh, from verse 18, when the Lord finished speaking to Moses on Mount Sinai, so now all the law has been given, he gave him the two tablets of the testimony, the tablets of stone inscribed by the finger of God. Now what you've got here are two tablets. The Ten Commandments are written on two tablets, ten on one, ten on the other. It's not that five are on one, you know, that God ran out of space. <laughs> The ten are written on each tablet of stone, and God wrote it. Now, the reason for that, in a covenant, both parties have a copy of it, so there are two. And the reason that God wrote it, and not Moses, God wrote it with his finger, all right, because the covenant was his. He was the suzerain. He was the one who started it all off, not Moses. Moses was simply the one who was given it, all right. Um, and uh, now, let's see. When the people, this is chapter 32 now, of Exodus, when the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered round Aaron and said, Come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us out of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. Now then, if you go down to verse 9, and this is God speaking to, um, I have seen these people, the Lord said to Moses, they are stiff-necked. Now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them and I will make of you into a great 
nation. You know, so God's saying, you're faithful, Moses, but they're not. I'll destroy them, all right? Now, if you um, go down to verse 15, Moses turned and went down the mountain. You see, because now Israel are worshipping an idol. See? Moses turned and went down the mountain with the two tablets of the Tesme in his hands. They were inscribed on both sides, front and back. The tablets were the work of God. The writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. Um, and then go down into verse uh, 25. Um, Moses saw that the people were running wild and that Aaron had let them get out of control. Uh, oh, ha hang on a sec, I've just lost a bit, 32, um, oh, hang on, I've got lost here. Right, okay, yeah, um, yeah, verse 19 we want. When Moses approached the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, his anger burned and he threw the tablets out of his hands, breaking them to pieces at the foot of the mountain. Now, what is this? The covenant is being torn up. Why? Or it was being broken up because it was on stones. Why? I'll tell you, because it wasn't worth the paper it was written on, or rather it wasn't worth the stone <laughs> it was written on. Alright. Now, here's the point. Okay? Now, this is... We saw in chapter 19, verse 8, when God first spoke to Moses, that the people said, Lord, we accept the covenant, we'll do it, we'll obey it. Here, what are they doing? Well, the point is that they have broken the first commandment have no other gods before me. They've broken the first term and condition of the covenant before the last one has even been given. Can you see the point? Israel has broken the covenant before its terms have even been completely written down and relayed to them. I.e., the covenant is over before it began. It was useless wasn't worth the rock it was inscribed in. So, the Old Covenant law was clearly a fiasco. It was an absolute failure. Or was it? You see, because God doesn't commit failures and God gave the law. Well, now we've got to understand one of the other main reasons why God brought the covenant into being in the first place. And here's the point. The law, the covenant with Moses, um, old covenant, all right, was a covenant of salvation by works, i.e., God does his bit and we do our bit. Um, if we don't do our bit, God doesn't do his bit, a conditional one. It was a condition, uh, sorry, it was a covenant of salvation by works, but here's the point. The covenant was never given in order to provide a way of salvation at all. It was a covenant of salvation by works. But God never intended it to be a way of salvation in any way at all. It was given, this covenant was made with Israel for two reasons. Firstly, it was given to show man that he was a sinner that he needed salvation. The law acted as the straight edge against which man's bentness was clearly revealed. It proved to man that he was in utter slavery to sin, the very thing that salvation is from. 
So the point is, this covenant, although a covenant of salvation by works, it wasn't given in order to be a means for salvation. It was given firstly to demonstrate that man was a sinner and needed salvation. That was the first reason it was given, and we're going to see this in the New Testament as we work through this. And then secondly, it demonstrated beyond all doubt that if a way of salvation was to be provided, then it would have to be through a covenant that wasn't dependent in any way at all on man doing his bit. Because he can't. I.e., God gave a covenant that was conditional to prove to man that any way of salvation would have to be through a royal grant covenant. Simply a gift of God. So the law was given to show man he was sinful and then to show him that if he was to be saved it would have to be through a royal grant simply a promise, a covenant, that depended only on God doing his bit. Because if man had a bit to do, he would blow it and the covenant would be useless, as the old covenant was. So the old covenant demonstrated that it itself was useless for the purpose of salvation. And it demonstrated that salvation would have to be through a covenant that was royal grant just like the previous four in the Bible that God had made with man. And so therefore, the Old Covenant was in reality a great success. It was a stroke of genius by the Lord. It wasn't given to provide a way of salvation. It was given to prove, to show to man, that if there was to be a way of salvation, it would have to be a way that didn't depend on man doing anything at all i.e. it was a suzerain vassal treaty to demonstrate that salvation had to be through a royal grant one. That was what it was there for. So it did its job perfectly. Now this was one of the main conflicts in the New Testament between Christianity, the teaching of Jesus, and Judaism. Because, you see, the point is, the church, through the teachings of Jesus, understood fully what the law was about. Because the New Testament teaches us everything we need to know about it. And, you see, the problem was that Israel, as a nation, they sort of thought it out like this. They thought um, that the mere fact that God gave them the covenant of the law meant that therefore they must be able to keep it, mustn't they? Or why would God give it? Now then, if it's true that we must be able to keep it, well, obviously we're good people, so we are keeping it, aren't we? So this old covenant was given so that we should be saved, because we're so holy, we're such good people. We're doing our bit, therefore, and this was the logical conclusion of their teaching, we're saved because we're Israelites. And the tradition of the elders taught that Abraham sort of sits at the gates of, of Hades there, you know, to yank out any Jew who by an accident is sent there and isn't saved. 
So Israel and the Pharisees, their logic was this, God gave us the law, therefore we can keep it, therefore we are keeping it, therefore aren't we wonderful, we're saved, we're God's people, we're saved because we're Jews. And that was Israel's understanding of the law. Now the point is Jesus and the early church came along with God's understanding of the law. And what we have here is that in Israel we see the blindness of the human heart ruled by self-righteousness to its own sin. Israel totally and utterly missed the point of the law. They got it wrong by as wide a margin as it was possible to do. All right. And it's that understanding of how Israel related to the law. That is the key to understanding much of the writings of Paul on the subject. All right. And remembering too that the reason that this was a problem in the early church was because many of the Jews who had become Christians, they still didn't understand the function of the law either. And rather than realising the truth about it, they were saying, well look, the law still has to be kept if we're to be saved. So as Jews got converted and followed the Lord, they brought the blindness about the law into the kingdom of God with them. And they simply taught, it boiled down, that salvation was gained by having faith in Jesus and keeping the law. All right? And that is why the question of the law was a problem in the early church and why Paul had to deal with it. Because false teaching about the law came into the church via Jewish converts. Now, if you go to Romans chapter 3, let's see Paul writing on this subject of the old law, the covenant of Moses, the old covenant. And let's see what he says. In Romans chapter 3 and verse 19, Romans chapter 3 and verse 19. Um, he says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law we become conscious of sin. But now a righteousness from God apart from law has been made known to which the law and the prophets <coughs> testify. Because you could deduce this merely from the Old Testament. You don't need the New Testament to understand what I'm telling you now about the law. It was in the Old Testament as well. They just didn't see it. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference. For all have sinned <coughs> and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace, the new covenant, through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. So there is Paul saying, look, the law was there to condemn us. It's obvious we can't obey the law. So any talk about being justified by the law is crazy. We read the law and it makes us conscious of our sin. It's the straight edge <coughs> that reveals the bentness of our sin. Uh, go to verse 27. He says, where then is boasting? It's excluded. On what principle? On that of observing the law? No, but that of faith. He's saying if you're saved because of your own efforts, well, you can boast because you've made a contribution. But he says, for we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from observing the law. Um, so there you have it again. Not the law. We're justified now 
by faith. Uh, go to chapter 8. Chapter 8, Romans chapter 8 and verse 3. He says, For what the law was powerless to do, in that it was weakened by the sinful nature. Now what Paul is saying, the law was powerless to save. How could the law save? The law required that we do our bit. But we have sinful natures, we can't do our bit. So therefore, the law, it was powerless to save us, but then he's already demonstrated that isn't why it was given. It was given to convict us. It wasn't given to save us, it was given to show us that if we are to be saved, it's got to be by something God does that doesn't require us making any contribution to it at all. And he said, what the law, weakened by the sinful nature, couldn't do, God did by sending his son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. And so there we see Paul saying, look, the law was not there in order to save us. That wasn't the reason. Now, I said earlier, because Paul said that this was in the law and the prophets. This was obvious from the Old Testament itself. Now, let's actually see his writings on, on, on that point, you see. Um, and Paul uses the example of Abraham. And Abraham, in the Bible, is the father of faith. So, uh, if you go now to Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4. Uh, start reading from verse 1. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, discovered in this matter? He's here addressing the Jews, and as soon as he says Abraham, they say, oh, listen, oh, Abraham, the father of Israel, the father of faith, oh, yes, that's right, you know. If, if it's in Abraham, we believe it. That was the idea. He said, if in fact Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, when, when a man works, his wages are not accredited to him as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the man who does not work, but trusts God who justifies the wicked, his faith is credited as righteousness. Now verse 13. It was not through law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise. Go to verse, that was verse 13, now verse 16. Therefore the promise comes by faith so that it may be by grace, and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring. Now verse 23. Um, sorry, verse 22. The words it was credited to him were written, not for him alone, but for also for us, to whom God will credit righteousness, for us who believe in him, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. Now what Paul is arguing there, now remember, Abraham was before the law was given. This is 400 years before the covenant of Moses came into effect. And Paul's arguing, look, the Old Testament says that Abraham was justified by faith. Before the law ever even appeared. And so what Paul is demonstrating, look, this isn't anything new. This was in the Old Testament itself, lads. This should be obvious to you what we're saying. Abraham was justified, not by law, but by grace, because he was justified 400-odd years before the law of Moses was even given. All right. Now go to Galatians chapter 3, and we'll see Paul arguing the same point. Galatians chapter 3. Um, first of all, verse 6. 
He says, consider Abraham, he believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. So now, writing to Galatians, he brings in the same argument. Now go to verse 17. He says, what I mean is this, the law, that's the covenant, alright, of Moses, the law, introduced 430 years later, so there was 430 years between Abraham having the covenant made with him and the covenant made with Moses. He says, the law introduced 430 years later does not set aside the covenant previously established by God. And what was the covenant God struck up with Abraham? I'm going to justify you through your faith. You see? So the point is the law came after all that, okay. So the point is, the promise of salvation by faith, salvation through a covenant that was royal grant, alright, purely a grace thing, was given before the conditional suzerain vassal covenant of the law even came into being. And the reason that the law happened anyway, Israel through Abraham had already been shown that salvation was going to be through God's grace, a free gift through faith. 430 years later, the law came in order to take people from that point and to show them you are sinful and you do need the gift of salvation. The law was given simply to make it easier for people to realise their need of the covenant of grace, salvation, through faith you see. So the point is, salvation was always by faith. Salvation was always a free gift, right back to the Garden of Eden. Salvation was always a free gift of God's grace. The law came along simply to make people realise how much they needed it, you see. So that's the point. Salvation was never by works, it was always through grace, God's grace, a free gift, a royal grant. The law was given simply to show people their desperate need of receiving that free gift of salvation from God. So then, we can ask a question now, can't we? Why aren't I under the law? Well, I mean, firstly, I'm, I'm Gentile. I never was. But in Romans chapter 2, Paul makes it clear that even with the Gentiles, who never even heard the law, the law is actually written on their hearts. The law is convicting them as surely as the law is convicting Israel, alright? So the point is, why aren't I under law? Well, I'm a Gentile. But secondly, I'm not under the law and could not possibly be under the law because it has already done its job in me. I'm saved. I've turned to Jesus for salvation. I have accepted God's free gift of salvation, and I've done this by putting my faith in Jesus. The law, which was there to get me to do it, has done it in me. I'm not under the law. The law has done its job in my life. Uh, you're still in Galatians. Go to chapter 3 and verse 23, when Paul simply says, You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Sorry, that was verse 26. Verse 23, we need. Paul says, Before this faith came, we were held prisoners by the law, locked up until faith should be revealed. So the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ, that we might be justified 
by faith. Now that faith has come, we are no longer under the supervision of the law. Because what was the law there to do? Show you a sinner and show you that salvation has to be a free gift. What have you done? Repented of your sins and believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. Boom! The law has done its work in your life. You are not under the law in any way at all. And when a Jew gets converted, it's exactly the, the same. The fact that they're an Israelite, when they come to Jesus, they are immediately taken out of any question of the covenant of Moses being binding on their lives at all. They're in the new covenant, which as we're going to see, totally overrides the old in every possible way. All right. And, uh, but there's even more to it than that, alright? Go to Romans. Because when God does something, he does it properly. Romans chapter 7 and 1 to 4. Now listen to the language here. <coughs> he says, Do you not know, brothers, for I'm speaking to men who know the law, alright, that the law has authority over a man as long as he lives. For example, by law, a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he's alive. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. So, if you're uh, sort of wed and your husband dies, well, that death totally sets you free from what the law says about marriage, because you're not married anymore. Now look in verse 4. So, my brothers, you also died to the law through the body of Christ that you might belong to another. Alright? Now go back to Galatians. You see he's arguing in a parallel way, you know, the same arguments he writes to the Romans, he writes to the Galatians. So, you know, we're hopping about between the two of them. But Galatians 2 uh, and uh, find verse 19. Um, for through the law, I died to the law, so that I might live for God. I've been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ who lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God. Although literally, the, he, the Greek there is the life I now live in the body, I live by the faith of the Son of God. But can you see the point? Paul says, we are dead to the law. It's as simple as that. We're Christians. The law has no binding effect on us at all. All right. Um, you know, I'm, I mean, say I drop dead tomorrow, Belinda has no more obligations to me. I'm dead. All right. And in exactly the same way, I'm dead to the law. I'm a dead man. The law has no oblig. You know, no. The law cannot touch someone who is dead. All right. And I was interested to find out a few weeks ago, and this is through watching a Columbo, which was quite interesting, all right? And it was a bloke who'd shot someone trying to murder them. But what he didn't realise, the person had already been murdered before he shot them. He got in their house at night and shot them in bed. Someone else had already murdered them. And therefore, he couldn't be charged because you can't murder a dead man. So the point is, we, we're dead to the law. The law does not have any hold on us at all. We do not earn God's favour, which is what the law was all about. We have God's favour, <coughs> unconditionally, without having to do anything at all. Why? Because we are his children. So, we've already seen that the problem in the early church was that there were converts you know, from the Jews, they got saved, and 
they didn't understand properly this aspect of the law. They understood all the other aspects that we went through, one to eight, but this further thing that the law was simply there to show you you were a sinner and to show you that salvation had to be by grace, all right, that was lost on them. They didn't understand that, all right. And so they thought that the law was still in place in their lives. And so the point was, they were living under the demands of the law and they expected other Christians to do it as well. So they were rushing around from church to church saying, look, we've got to, you know, we've still got to be Judaistic. We're under the law. And the point was, they didn't only want other Jewish Christians to be under the law, they wanted Gentile Christians to be under the law as well. So you had in the early church, all right, this thing that to be a Christian, you weren't just under the covenant of grace, but you were under the law of Moses as well, and it caused havoc, and Paul had to counter them. And so he did it by explaining, as we've seen, why the law was really given and why we're not under it, you see. But the point is, and we just need to see this to make sense of what Paul does teach, is that Paul is trying to say, look, you've got it wrong. He's trying to counter wrong teaching with right, okay. But the point was, as he did it, the people who were into the law, they all the time, they would twist what Paul taught. I mean, we've seen this in the past. I've had things that I teach totally twisted by people, all right. Um, and this happened to Paul as well. And what happens, these people, they were trying to protect the law. They thought the law had to be protected, you see. And so what they did, various things that Paul said, they tried to twist it to make Paul look like a heretic, you know, making it look as if he was saying things that he wasn't. And this was all their attempt to discredit Paul and, uh, you know, to say, well, he's wrong and we're right, you know, we're under the law, like, all right. And we've, we've got to see the way they twisted what he said. Now, firstly, they tried to make out that Paul was saying that his teaching was, right, if we're not under law but we're under grace, then it's, it's okay to be lawless, isn't it? It's okay to do what you like because grace covers it all. Or, in actual fact, being legalists, they accused Paul of being into license. All right? Now, that's the second part of the series that we'll move on to. But just, just go to Romans 6, because Paul has to counter this. He's got people going around and saying, Paul says that we're not under the law, and therefore what he means by that is you can do what you like, sin with impunity. Romans 6, verse 1 to 2. Paul says, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may abound? By no means. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Paul says, no, I'm not saying that at all. And in verse 15, he says, what then? Shall we sin because we're not under the law but under grace? By no means. Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone to obey him as slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey, whether slaves to sin or to righteousness? So Paul says, don't twist what I'm saying. That's not what I'm saying at all. I'm not saying that the fact we're not under law means that we can just carry on sinning. I'm not saying that. Now, secondly, they tried to make out that Paul's teaching was that if it was the law that revealed <coughs> sin, therefore, if God hadn't have given the law, then there wouldn't have been any sin. And therefore, the law calls sin, so therefore, the law was sinful. And if God gave the law, then God's sinful as well. And they tried to twist it. Paul says, look, God gave us the law to highlight our sin, all right? So they say, what Paul's saying is that, that if it hadn't been for the law, then there wouldn't be any sin. So it's the law that creates sin. 
And that wasn't what Paul was saying at all, all right? Uh, Romans, go, go to chapter 7, Romans chapter 7. And uh, in verse 7, he says, What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. I would not have known what sin was except through the law. I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, do not covet. All right? So then Paul's saying, no, all I'm saying is that the law revealed our sin. Didn't cause it. The law revealed it. They were trying to say that Paul was teaching the law causes sin. So if there hadn't have been the law that God gave, there wouldn't have been sin. Paul says, I'm, I'm not saying that in the slightest. All right. Uh, they also tried to make out, this is a twofold thing, that, that Paul taught that, that, that God had failed with the law and so, having failed with the Mosaic law, he had to come up with a covenant of grace to bail himself out. You see what I mean? They tried to make out that Paul was saying, look, God failed with the law, he made a mistake. So that's gone and God's replaced it with something else. And of course the point is that if someone was saying that God is a failure, he's failed in something, that's a blasphemy. And of course Paul wasn't saying that at all. Yeah, we've already seen the law was there, um, you know, simply to show how much you needed a covenant of grace. It, it wasn't there, it, you know, it wasn't that God said, right, well, let's try salvation by law. And then, oh, goodness, it doesn't work. Oh, what else shall I come up with? That wasn't it at all, all right. And then also they made out that Paul was teaching that the law of Moses contradicted the promises he made to Abraham. So that what they were saying, Paul, you're teaching that because you're saying that the covenant of Moses, you know, has now been knocked out because the covenant with Abraham is grace, blah, 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 then what you're saying is that God contradicts himself. You know, that these covenants are mutually exclusive, a contradiction. And Paul has to deal with that. And if you just have a look in Galatians, Galatians chapter 3 and verse 21, he says, is the law, therefore, opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not. And then he says, For if a law had been given that could impart lo uh, life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. But the scripture declares the whole world is a prisoner of sin. So that what was promised, being given through uh, faith in Christ Jesus, might be given to those who believe. And what Paul is saying there, I'm not saying at all he's saying, you know, that, that, that one contradicts the other. I'm saying that the Mosaic law was simply there to show us that if we're to be saved, it would have to be through a covenant of grace and not a covenant of works. And so, you know, the thing is that you had Christians in the church who were, we're all for the law, the legalists, and they were trying to twist what Paul taught. What Paul taught was quite simply this. God gave the Mosaic law for all the reasons we've seen, but also to show us we were sinners. And to show us that if you're to be saved, then it's got to be a covenant that doesn't depend on you. It's got to be royal grant, not a suzerain vassal. And that is why the law was given. And it fulfilled its task superbly. It wasn't a failure at all. It was all part of God's plan. It was an aid to getting saved because you're not going to repent of your sins unless you know you're a sinner, are you? And that is what the law was there. And you can't have assurance of salvation if you think it depends on you. Well, the law was there to show it doesn't depend on you. It depends only on the promises of God, all right? Now, of course, all that we've said about the law would have been merely academic 
if it had been purely a question that the Jews outside the church were pro-law, but the Jews inside the church were pro-grace. The problem is that there was a clash in the church. False teaching of legalism had come into the Christian church, and that is why it had to be sorted out. There were Christians mixing up the covenants. They said, we're under the covenant of grace, we accept that, but we're still under the covenant of the law. And there was an almighty clash in the early church, and that had to be sorted out. And that is why I've defined the error of legalism as being placing non-biblical demands and restrictions on Christians be they from the old covenant or be they from anywhere else. And that's what legalism is. Legalism is when you bind things on Christians and say you've got to do this or you mustn't do that. The Bible doesn't say. They're getting the covenants mixed up. All right. Um, let's just see Paul directly head to head with this legalism. Uh, go to Colossians chapter 2. And remember, legalism didn't just come from the Jews, it mainly did, but the Gentiles had their own versions of do's and don'ts as well. Um, Colossians chapter 2, and now we're really seeing this head to head. Colossians chapter 2, verse 16. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you, uh, judge you, by what you eat or drink, or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Verse 20. Since you died with Christ to the basic principles of this world, why, as though you still belong to it, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These are all destined to perish with use because they're based on human commands and teachings. And here's the point. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, you know, bow, bow, scrape, scrape, their harsh treatment of the body. The Lord wants me to give up everything. You know, I mean, you know it sounds good, doesn't it? But they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. Well, why? Because the problem is our hearts, it's not our bodies, it's our hearts. Um, go to Galatians. Again, Galatians, chapter 4, verse 8 to 11. Formerly, when you didn't know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are not gods. But now that you know God, or are known by him, how is it that you're turning back to weak and miserable principles? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? You're observing special days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that somehow I have wasted my efforts on you. And then in chapter 5, verse 1, he said, It's for freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Now then, anything unbiblical is not, we, you know, we don't touch. We are free to do anything that the New Covenant allows us to do. If the New Covenant doesn't forbid us, we're free to do it. It's as simple as that. And, and sort of extra-biblical rules and regulations are demonic. They are wrong. Now look at the Christian scene today. Priesthood, buildings called churches, unbiblical ministries all over the place, Sabbath observance, membership roles, 
authoritative eldership, you know, that say you've got to do this, that and the other, when this, that and the other isn't specified in the Bible. Or they say you mustn't do this, that and the other, when this, that and the other isn't forbidden in the Bible. Can you see what I mean? And, and today there's a morass out there of legalistic teaching and bondage, and we're going to see that in more detail as the course goes along. No, we are free from the Old Testament Mosaic Law, alright? Anything that isn't placed on us as a demand or restriction by the New Covenant, we're free to do or not do as we choose. It's as simple as that, okay. So then, we've answered the first two questions. What is this law we're not under? The Mosaic Law. Why aren't we under it? We've seen that, okay. But I've still left myself wide open for what I've said about the Ten Commandments, because I stand by it, the Ten Commandments are not binding on us, all right? And I feel I've left myself wide open for misrepresentation there, so keep coming to the talks. However, you won't get the answer to that one until the week after next. Next week, okay, uh, we look at the one covenant we haven't looked at, the New Covenant, which is, as we're going to see, a Royal Grant Covenant of Grace. Or to put it another way, salvation, by faith in Jesus.